So open up in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be finishing up this chapter. Mark chapter 10, an incredible little section. One of the sections, personally for me, that as I began to, to look ahead, you know, you're, you're preaching through the text, and you look ahead, and you go, okay, this is going to be a section again where Jesus heals a blind person who's actually seen this before, another healing account. Um, you know, what are, what are we going to say that's new if we've already kind of covered many of the healings of Christ? And then you get studying it and you go, wow, glory is also found here. This is amazing. Um, and, and it just got me reflecting that one of the most incredible blessings of studying the Gospels is that we get to see Christ on full display week after week. We get to bathe in the immeasurable riches of the glories of Jesus Christ. We get to behold him. We get to marvel at his majesty. And this text, I believe, will do that for us. We will see him. We will glory in him. It will be a text that we just essentially work straight through and look and stare and behold Jesus. It's a glorious thing to do. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about in, in studying this particular text is we see so much about Jesus' power when we're studying the Gospels. You see his power on display. You see that he's the Son of God in chapter 1. You see that he has the power over demons. You see that he has the power to heal the sick. You see he has the power to restore broken, corrupted bodies and bring them back to their original design he has the, the authority to forgive sins. He is the Lord of the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2. He is in control of the weather. He calms the storm. He raises the dead. He demonstrates that he has the power of the very creator himself as he multiplies the bread and the fish for the multitudes. His power is continually on display in his power is something we marvel at, but the glory of Jesus Christ is not merely in the fact that he is powerful. It's more than that. It is also that he is merciful, that he is compassionate. Mercy. I wonder if any of you walked into church this morning or woke up this morning. And maybe you didn't articulate it in your mind, but you were in desperate need of mercy. I think what we're going to encounter as we, we study this text is that if, if you've come into this room this morning and you started your day feeling like you have everything together, and you feel pretty strong and perhaps entitled and competent, talented, gifted, able, adequate. You may not like this sermon. But if you felt weak, if you felt inept, insufficient, confused, like things kind of have fallen apart or disintegrating around you, 
exhausted, weary, do you feel like a failure? Do you feel like you're never good enough? Do you feel like life's kind of gotten away from you and you're scrambling all the time to put it all back together? I think this sermon will be like fresh water to a weary traveler. It'll bolster your soul. It will feed you what you need to be fed. You will be encouraged. The weak will be encouraged this morning, I think. Because it's a message about mercy. About mercy. We sing that song from time to time. His mercy is more. And my favorite line of that song is the line that goes, he, talking about Jesus, welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy more. I often reflect as we sing that song, if that wasn't true, there's no way I'd have any relationship with God. If he did not welcome weak people like me, if he did not welcome vile people like myself, if he was not willing to take my sins upon himself and deal with them on that cross, there's no possible way I could have any relationship with God. It is all mercy, sheer mercy, pure mercy that I and you or anyone ever in all of history has a relation with God. It is purely because of the unearned favor, the unearned mercy, the compassion of God. So we get to see that this morning, and it is a beautiful picture of mercy. And who gets it? I want you to read along with me. I'll read the entire section, verses 46 to 52. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me, be, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Breaking this text up into six parts, they'll be brief, but we'll look at the context, the condition, the cry, the call, the compassion, and the commitment. Don't write them down now. Don't even try. We're going to look first with the context, and I hope you're impressed that they all start with the letter C. The context, they came to Jericho, the text says. Remember, though, they're on their way not to Jericho, but to Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 32, they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And you know from last week that the reason that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and taking his disciples there is because that is where he will lay his life 
down. That is where he will be confronted by the chief priests. He will be delivered up over to the Romans and he will be killed. He'll be crucified. He knows that is going to happen and that is where he is going. So always in this last portion of Mark, you have to keep that in your mind. The shadow of the cross looms over these next few chapters as we come to the end. That is where he's heading. He is going to the cross. And remarkably, what we looked at last week, he's walking ahead of his disciples, indicating a sense of determination and urgency to go and accomplish the salvation for his people that he would give them. He is heading that way. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And here in our text, it says they come to Jerusalem, or sorry, Jericho. And on the way there, this pathway to Jerusalem would have been mostly desert. There's a lot of desert terrain over in this area. But Jericho was a little bit unique in the fact that there was a spring that, had, that, that was natural, that had fresh water that had been flowing there in Jericho and made Jericho a city that had been inhabited for several hundred years. In fact, historians say that there are two cities that are the oldest cities in the world that have been inhabited longer than any other city. One is Damascus and the other is Jericho. Jericho has always been inhabited, even if you go back into Old Testament times, Jericho plays a prominent role in the history of Israel's conquest of the promised land. Because it was an inhabited city, it was always a resting place for travelers, particularly after uh, Jews had kind of been dispersed. If they were heading back to Jerusalem, Jericho was a common place that travelers would stop, they would rest, they would get water. Jericho was a place for passing through. And you notice here in our text, it says that he was with a great crowd. There's not only the disciples with him, but there's a great crowd also on the way. Who is that? Well, you know that all along the way that Jesus has been doing these amazing things, teaching these things, a crowd has been coming to himself. But in addition to that, because we're heading into Passover week, there would have been a great mass of humanity heading from the north into Jerusalem for Passover. So these would have been traveling pilgrims on the same road as Jesus, flooding into Jerusalem for the Passover week to commemorate their redemption, their salvation from Egypt many, many years ago. So they're leaving, or sorry, they're coming to Jericho. They're coming to Jericho. It says, as he was leaving Jericho, what's interesting is that Luke gives a different account, says that this event with the blind man happened as they were arriving at Jericho. And some people have gone to make some claims that there's contradictions in the Bible because Luke and Mark are saying something different. The fascinating historical explanation for this is there was actually two sites of Jericho. The Old Testament Jericho was built in one place and not uh, actually, several centuries later, when Herod came along, one of the Herods built a new Jericho that was slightly in a different place than the original Jericho, about a mile uh, separate from the other one. So he's actually leaving one Jericho and passing through another Jericho. Both of these sites are referred to as Jericho, and so Matthew, or sorry, Mark and Luke are not in disagreement. They're just speaking of old and new Jerichos. Now, they're on their way. And we encounter this one man called Bartimaeus. He's a named, many of the people who are healed are not named. Bartimaeus is named. And I think there's two reasons 
that this little section is included in the Gospels here. You say, why, why is it here? You know, Jesus has just been talking about the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It would make sense for him, for the author, Mark, to just cut to the chase and get right to the triumphal entry where he enters Jerusalem. But no, he includes this story about Bartimaeus. I think there's two reasons. One is because it is the last miracle before the resurrection. In other words, Jesus has been flooding all of Israel with his miracles in the north and in the south and everywhere in between. All of Israel has been hearing about the mighty power, the supernatural work of Jesus the Messiah. And this is kind of the final act. He is going to restore the sight of a blind man. The other reason I believe that Mark names Bartimaeus is because when Mark was writing this several years after the resurrection of Christ, most scholars believe that Bartimaeus actually became a leader in the early church. And the original audience of Mark's gospel would have actually known or been familiar with Bartimaeus himself. And so this is almost like the origin story of Bartimaeus. This guy, Bartimaeus, in the early church, how would we know him? Well, he actually, he was the last miracle that Jesus did as he's heading in to Jerusalem. So I think this was included there. Perhaps even his father, Timaeus, was also well known in the early church. So this is the context. They're on their way. It's the final miracle. Jesus is about to lay down his life in Jerusalem And we meet Bartimaeus. Let's talk about the condition of the blind man. Let's talk about his condition. That was the context. It says, Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. You see that? He is a blind beggar. It says that he was sitting by the roadside. Here is a man. We don't know how long he has been blind. It doesn't say if he was blind from birth or if it was some sort of accident along the way or some disease that had damaged his eyesight. We do not know. All we know is that at this point in his life, he is blind. His whole world is darkness. He cannot see. He is totally dependent on the help and support of others. However, in this context, in this society, blindness was considered punishment of some sort. He was seen as an outcast, not only because he couldn't function normally in society, but because people thought that his blindness was a punishment for his sin. That he was cursed by God and he deserved to be blind because of something he or his parents had done. We know that this is the way that people thought in those days because John chapter 9 it includes a story about the disciples talking to Jesus about a blind man, and they go up to him and they ask him, hey, who sinned that this guy's blind? Was it him or his parents? In other words, they had this idea. It was so built into their culture that they couldn't conceive of a blind person who was just blind because they were blind. They thought it had to be someone's sin that caused them to be blind. Okay, was it, the, was it mom who sinned? And that's why he's blind. Was it dad who sinned? Is that why he's blind? Or maybe he did something terrible and he's now cursed with blindness. That was the typical way of thinking in this society that you were cursed by God and blindness was your punishment. And so not only is he physically unable to participate in society in any normal way, he is actually treated as an outcast. He is marginalized by the society because he was understood to be under he was under a punishment he was under a curse 
And so to relieve him of the punishment might be seen as undermining God's decision to punish this person. He is being disdained by God. That's uh, how at least people would have thought of him. He was cursed by God, and so people would have understood. And I think that even Bartimaeus himself had probably come to the conclusion that this was all true, that the reason he was an outcast of society was because he was accursed. He was accursed. He was left out. He was abandoned not only by people but by God himself. And there is no one there to come alongside or to help. No, they wouldn't do that. He was an outcast. And we read this scene so quickly that I think we can gloss over this and we don't understand how horrible the plight of this man would have been. I mean, think about this. He's a blind beggar and he's on the roadside. Those are the facts we get about this guy. He's on the roadside. In other words, he's been so relegated to a lifestyle where all he can do is, he can't work for himself. No one is giving him any handout. He's got to go out to the roadside where there's going to be a lot of travelers passing through. He's got to listen for the shuffling of feet. He's got to listen for the passing of crowds. And he's banking entirely on the generosity of people to give him something. And if you just use your imagination and you start asking some questions, it becomes even more clear how dire a situation this would have been. What does he do when the shuffling of feet stops? What does he do when the sun sets and there's no more people on the road? I mean, does, where does he go to rest his head? How does he procure lodgings? How does he get a meal? How does he care for himself? He has no way of doing this, and society would not have helped him in any way. So he's there on the roadside in abject poverty, completely dependent on the generosity of a passerby, of a traveling pilgrim, to give him something to extend his life another day. This is the man that Jesus will heal, which will be a stark rebuke to the pharisaical idea that God favors the rich, he favors the wealthy, he favors the healthy, he favors the upstanding, the strong, the able. It is a rebuke of that mindset that thinks that if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, bootstraps that God will then favor you. No, we are revealed here the heart of Christ, the heart of the Father. Our God is one who delights to help the helpless. That is the kind of God we see here. And let's look at the cry of the man. The cry. Somehow this man had now heard of Jesus. It says, verse 47, that when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. He's hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, which is a very human way of referring to Jesus. You're talking about him and his humanity, which indicates that the people, the buzz of the travelers and the pilgrims, they're talking about this guy, but they're not quite understanding all that he is. They're talking about Jesus in a really human way. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. It's the guy, the rabbi who was born in Nazareth. But you'll notice that when this man, when Bartimaeus cries out, he doesn't call him that. He understands something far more profound about the identity of this Jesus. In verse 47, says that he began to cry out. He began to cry out. The word, the Greek word for that cry is used in other places to indicate something far beyond like, hey, yo, Jesus, hey, over here. 
in fact, that same word is used to describe in Mark chapter 5, the demoniac shrieking day and night, this demon-possessed individual inhabited by a legion of demons shrieking and crying and screaming all throughout the night and day. That same word is used here. It is emphatic. It would indicate a sort of scream, a kind of desperate shriek that as the crowd is talking about Jesus, this man begins to cry out in utter desperation, a kind of shriek, a kind of scream, something to be heard, something to get the attention of the one that is called Jesus of Nazareth. It must have been embarrassing, verse 48, for everyone else. They rebuked him. They're probably embarrassed. Quiet down, guy. Come on. You're embarrassing yourself. You're, you're too loud. You're causing a scene. Quiet down. He's screaming to try to be heard over the din of the traveling pilgrims. But he is not embarrassed. He is utterly desperate. He's not ashamed. He's crying out. He doesn't care what people think. And look at what he says. Jesus, son of David, have Mercy on me, he screams. Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out. What does he want? We'll get to the title, Son of David, in a second, but I think it's important to point out what is he crying for? What does he want? I believe this section is to be read with the previous section in mind. The previous section, if you recall, is James and John coming to Jesus with a request. Do you remember? And they had a request, did they not? Their request was to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he comes to his kingdom. They wanted the positions of honor. They wanted the positions of exaltation. They wanted to be recognized. And the reason they asked for those things had to be because deep down they felt that they deserved it. They thought it would be right. It would be a right thing for us to have these spots. Look, we were with you on the Mount of Transfiguration. We've been with you all along the way. It would only make sense for us to sit there with you in your glory at the most prominent positions there. They want honor. They're asking for thrones. And in contrast, Bartimaeus makes no such requests. He is asking for one thing. It is one thing on his heart that he desires more than anything else. He is begging for mercy. Mercy. Think anyone who is in tune with their fallen condition, there's something deep down in your heart that just begins to flutter when you hear the word mercy. Because you know how much you've needed mercy in your life. You know what mercy did to you. You lost sinner who was brought home by sheer mercy. You know how badly you need mercy each and every day. That word mercy for the Christian is such a precious word, such a powerful word, something that we can feed on for days and days talk about it for a second. We often define mercy as not getting a punishment that you deserve, which is a fine definition, but I think it's too narrow to understand, to encapsulate the whole breadth of what mercy is in the Bible. 
Mercy is beyond that. It is that, but it's more than that. It is that we escape a punishment that we deserve by sheer grace. That's part of it. But mercy is multifaceted. It includes compassion. It includes pity. It is a compulsion to do good for those who cannot pay you back. It is a desire to show compassion for those who are helpless. It is a compulsion to give to people who do not deserve anything, to show kindness to the undeserving. This is the kind of mercy that he's begging for. It is as if Bartimaeus is crying out to the son of David, I do not deserve your help, but I need it. I have not earned your care, but I'm begging for it. If I have to pay for your help, I cannot afford it. I can give you nothing in return. I have nothing to offer. I cannot pay you back. I cannot coax you or coerce you into helping you, helping me. I am solely appealing to your free mercy. I have nothing to give you in return. If you would help me, it would be based upon inherent love, inherent mercy. It cannot be drawn out by anything I have to give you because I have nothing. He is begging for mercy. And he recognizes, he knows, because of the title he uses to refer to Jesus as the son of David, he knows that he's talking to a king. He knows. The crowds are all calling him Jesus of Nazareth. Blind man sees more clearly than they do. He is the son of David. Quick theological lesson here. Let's look We've got to think back of our Old Testament history here. Abraham was promised to be the father of a nation. That nation would become Israel. Israel would become a kingdom. God was going to pl- plan on using that kingdom to be a blessing to all the nations. God came then to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, made David a promise. David's promise was that someone from the line of David, an offspring of the line of David, would come. He would establish that kingdom. It would be an everlasting kingdom that it would be God's own rule on the earth from Jerusalem. That was the promise to David. All the prophets talk about the one coming from the line of David, the son of David, the root of David. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And then here he appears on the scene. He's entering Jerusalem, the place where the Davidic throne is. He's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. And not many people seem to be getting it. And the blind man hears about him and he goes, it's the son of David. It's the son of David. It's the prophesied one. It's the one who is going to come and set up the everlasting kingdom. And here I am on this road to Jerusalem and he's marching his way in. Son of David, he knows he's talking to a king. He doesn't expect Jesus to answer him as if he's entitled to something. He understands that there is no obligation for this king to show mercy. And so he is appealing to the sheer compassion, the pity, the mercy of the great king, the glorious son of David who will sit on David's throne, who will rule and reign in Jerusalem. Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries out. Listen, if he doesn't get mercy, he has nothing. There's no other option here. He is totally and completely dependent upon mercy. You are too. Whether we feel it or not, we are completely dependent on the mercy of God. He cries out, 
And let's look at the call. This is going to now refer to Jesus' call of him. Verse 49. I love this. This one was just so much to reflect on. These first three words, and Jesus stopped. (laughs) He's, He's urgent. He's marching ahead. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows what he's doing. Just the previous section, as we talked about last week, he is on a mission. He will be undeterred. He has sent his face like flint to march to Jerusalem to lay down his life. He's ahead of the disciples, so even they understand that there's so much determination in the heart of Christ to go to Jerusalem. And yet, at the sound of a beggar crying for mercy, he stops dead in his track. It gets his attention. It's almost as if there is something that Jesus cannot say no to. I find it so encouraging here to think of what's going on in the heart of Christ. That there's a cry for mercy, mercy and he just pauses, he stops. All of a sudden he's, he's perked up, he's listening, he's ready to attend to the need. You see, we talk a lot about all the things that Jesus can do. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the omnipotence of God, that with, all, with God, all things, anything is possible. But I want to tell you, there is one thing that Jesus cannot do. You say, well, why do you mean there's something that Jesus cannot do? We just talked about how omnipotent he is. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. Oh, yeah, he is. But let me tell you one thing he cannot do. He cannot, def- def- he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his nature. He cannot go against his own character. And therefore, because he is by nature a merciful Savior, he cannot turn off the mercy that is in, in his character. He cannot turn it off like a switch. He is by his very nature a merciful Savior. He cannot hear these words. He cannot resist true cries for mercy. He will not say no to the cry for mercy. He cannot say no to cries for mercy. It would undo him. It would unravel his very character and his very nature because he is by his own nature a merciful and a gracious and a compassionate Savior. I love what Spurgeon has to say about this. He goes, I tell you, If he were to shut you out, dear soul, whoever you may be, if you go to him, he would deny himself. He never did deny himself yet. He will be more glad to receive you than you will be to be received. I tell you again that he cannot reject you. That would be to alter his whole character and to unchrist himself. To spurn a coming sinner would un-Jesus him and make him to be somebody else and not himself any longer. He cannot deny himself. Go to him and try him. He cannot un-Jesus himself, church. He cannot un-Christ himself. By his very nature, he's a merciful and compassionate Savior. He loves, he delights to show pity on the poorest of the poor and the most vile of the vile. And here he is stopping dead in his tracks to pay attention to a roadside beggar who was considered to be accursed by God, who had nothing to offer. That is the man who has the attention of the Savior. And all the crowds around him 
They're rebuking this guy. Quiet down. Don't approach Jesus that way. And yet that is the approach that Jesus commends. That is the approach that gets the ear of Jesus. And then he goes, call him. Isn't that amazing? Now Jesus becomes proactive. The cry for mercy has hit the heart of Christ. And now Jesus is going not to merely wait for the man to come to him or to grope his way forward or to somehow find him. No, now Jesus is proactive. Now Jesus is the pursuer. Now Jesus calls the man, you come to me. I will seek you out. I will find you. You are now coming to me. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you is what the people now say. And they bring him to Jesus. Jesus is now the pursuer. He comes after those who are crying for mercy. You may be lost and dead in your trespasses and sins and unable to get out of the muck and mire of your own life. And Jesus hears the calls for mercy and he is willing and able to move forward as a proactive Savior to go after those who are trusting in him. And this leads us to ask ourselves, why wouldn't we run to him? Why wouldn't we call upon him? Don't we have great need for mercy? Did you not have great need for his grace this week? Didn't you need his help this week? Parents dealing with children that are wayward, didn't you need help this week? Dealing with difficult marriages, didn't you need help this week? Dealing with difficulty at work, difficulty in life, difficulty with sickness, did you not need help? And here we encounter a Savior who loves to help the helpless. He stopped in his tracks when the beggar cries out for mercy. And I take that to mean that our Savior is himself merciful. And that he will respond to the cries of his children for mercy. And I think it the utmost kind of folly to not come to him with our cries for mercy. Why would we not? And how, if we understand this, would this affect the way we pray? Wouldn't we always be bringing our requests to him? Wouldn't we always be coming to him in our weaknesses? And yet how frequently, as we are weak and confused and helpless and lost, we are still moping around relying on our own resources rather than going to the one who is not only omnipotent but is merciful. The man cries out, have mercy on me. The heart of Christ is stopped. He starts moving after this sinner, this beggar, to help him. And now we see the compassion. The compassion. What do you want me to do? Remarkable. I don't know if this blind man had ever been so loved and cared for in all his life. I don't know if he'd ever been paid as much attention to as this moment right here. When everyone else rebuked him, no one else cared for him, no one else was concerned about his plight. And here is the prophesied son of David, the great glorious king of kings who has come. And on this road, this dusty road on the way to Jerusalem encounters a beggar. And here the king of glory takes on the posture of a servant. What can I do for you? You know... Read this in line with the previous section. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here he is doing that very thing. He is functioning. I mean, the, word, the, the, the question that he asked is, is something a butler would ask. What can I do for you? It's like a servant. It's a slave. Jesus is so glorious, son of David, and here is taking the posture of a slave. How can I help you? What do you need? I'm here. I'm listening. What do you want me to do for you? Cursed, blind, filthy outcast. Jesus has humbled himself below him. He's asking, how can I help you? Reminiscent of what will happen when he washes his disciples' feet. God of the universe. The slave of all. What compassion. He is not only glorious because he is majestic. He is glorious because he is meek. He is glorious because he's gentle. Because he's compassionate. He is a king of glory. And he is a slave. Those who come to him for mercy, he will be their servant. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in 1738 titled, The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. We'll have to exposit and exegete that title alone just to know what it means. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. He's, he's talking about the, the amazing combination of the infinite glory of Christ and his infinite condescension in lowering himself to the point of death on a cross. That's what he's, he's doing in the sermon is look at his glory and look at his humbling. Look at his glory and look at his condescension. Listen to what he says about the glories of Christ. And it will help us understand even more the power of what's happening in this scene. He preached this. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heaven. So great is he that all men, all kings, and all princes are but as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket and in the light dust of the balance. Yea, and angels themselves are as nothing before him. He is so high that he is infinitely above any need of us above our reach that we cannot be profitable to him, and above our conceptions that we cannot possibly comprehend him. Our understandings, if we stretch them ever so far, cannot reach up to his divine glory. Christ is the creator and great possessor possessor of heaven and earth. He is sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and doth whatever pleaseth him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and none can circumvent. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. And then he goes on to describe and this glorious one lowers himself to take notice of fallen sinners. Is it the glorious angels that he pays attention to? No, he goes lower than that. Is it the kings and the princes and the nobles and the upright ones of the earth that he cares for? No, he goes lower still. How low will the great sovereign king of glory go 
How low will he abase himself? He pays attention to children. He pays attention to beggars. He pays attention to outcasts. He welcomes weakest, vilest, poor. And listen, he goes beyond merely paying attention to them. No, he humbles himself even lower still to become their friend, to become their companion, and lower still to take on their nature, to become a man. And then lower still, to lay his life down, to die a brutal death of torture on a cross, and to raise himself up again. Why? So that he can unite these precious beloved children whom he loves to himself. And what the Bible describes is something so intimate that it's like a marriage, that his church is like his bride whom he loves, whom he lays his life down for, that he will never abandon. He will always love for all eternity, that he will wash and he will cleanse and he will sanctify until his bride is complete and in glory one day. He will go that low for such people as us. What a Savior. That he would have mercy on us, the King of kings, so that if you think that you're too much a sinner, you're too much an outcast, you're too vile, your sins have held you back too long that this omnipotent Lord would hold himself back from you when you cry out for mercy. Think again. The more unqualified you know yourself to be, the more ready he is to come and to be the one who pours out his mercy upon you. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. And so long as you keep saying to yourself, well, I'm not that weak. I'm not that vile, and I'm not that poor. You're stiff-arming Jesus. Because if you would just see yourself for who you are in all your need, that you are actually in desperate need of mercy, if you could see that he would respond to your cries for mercy with abundant compassion, grace. Friends, what, do you, what, what have you thought about God. What do you think he's like? I don't think we reason ourselves to this kind of God. We need divine revelation to see that God could be this majestic, powerful, and at the same time, this merciful. It it turns the wisdom of the world upside down, doesn't it? Because we don't operate like this. We tend to like people who can pay us back. We tend to want to be around people who have something to offer us. God does the opposite. He wants the people who cannot pay him back to show the riches of his grace and mercy. So he asked the man, what do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? It says that the blind man, verse 51, said to him, Rabbi, I think is, is not the best translation. There, it is a form of the word rabbi, but it's an emphatic form. The reason it's not translated is because the emphatic form isn't as understood, but some translations use the word rabboni, which is, which is a way of not only communicating that you're a teacher, rabbi, it's a way of communicating that I'm submitting to you as my master and my Lord. 
It is beyond just the rabbi. It's beyond just the fact that you're a teacher. In other words, the blind man right here is recognizing that Jesus is not merely a healer. Jesus is not merely a king. Jesus is not merely the son of David. He's also my Lord, my master. I am trusting myself to you. I'm coming to you. I am entrusting my soul to you. Rabboni, master, Lord, let me recover my sight. I just want to see want to say, would you, would, could you do that for me? It's a humble request. I believe entailed in the whole interchange between this man and Jesus indicates that it's saving faith. In his humility, he is looking for a savior. He is looking for a king. He is looking for a healer. And he finds all those things in Christ. And I think what happens with Jesus' response seals the deal. Look at verse 52. It says, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let me just tell you, the Greek word for made you well is a word that every first-year seminary Greek student would know. It's the word sozo, which is the word translated elsewhere to mean salvation. In other words, some translations indicate it says this, that your faith has saved you. That what he gets when he gets Christ is a full salvation. He gets a king. He gets forgiveness of sins. He gets a purified soul, and he gets his sight restored as a foretaste of the glorified body he will receive in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, I think this blind man sees better than most of us see. He saw more clearly than the crowds. He saw more clearly even than the disciples, it seems. He, first of all, he saw his own weakness, whereas we often see ourselves as self-sufficient. He saw his own need for mercy, where we often feel entitled. He saw that Jesus is the son of David, whereas we often think of Jesus as some sort of religious guru or celebrity. He saw that Jesus and Jesus alone could heal, whereas we often turn to all kinds of other solutions. He saw that Jesus delights to be gracious to the humble, whereas we often think Jesus will only be good to those who deserve it. He saw that when everyone else would reject him, Jesus would take him in. He saw that God could love him, even though he had nothing to offer and nothing to pay and nothing to earn and nothing he could give. He saw those things. And how often is our sight obscured by the sad reality, the sad lie we've embraced that we must earn something from God to be loved by him. Whereas the Bible teaches that you can earn nothing but you must come before him in abject humility and ask for mercy and believe that his death on the cross made payment for your sin and his resurrection was for your justification and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and all those who come to him by faith and faith alone will be justified forever, saved from sin, promised eternal life, welcomed into the family of God, adopted for all eternity to enjoy bliss in heaven with our Lord. So we see the last C here, the commitment. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus began to follow Jesus. He could see, and the first thing he sees is his Lord's face. I'm following you. He follows him into Jerusalem. And I think he follows him to the cross. I think he was there, part of the crowd that watched him die. 
And I think he was there afterward that was a testimony of the resurrection. And I think he was probably there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 at the birth of the church. And I think his whole life, poor blind beggar Bartimaeus never grew out of the awe and wonder that the Son of God, who is also the Son of David, visited him on a dusty road outside of Jerusalem, granted him mercy, opened his eyes, and invited him to follow him. I don't think he ever grew out of that because church history testifies to the fact that this man became a primary person in the early church. He was a blind beggar on the road when, when we met him in the text. But isn't it amazing, church, that one day we will meet Bartimaeus. And when you see him in glory, he won't look like an outcast on the side of the road. He will look like a king. And he will rule and reign with Christ and he will be clothed in royalty, and he will have his glorified body, and you, Christian, will too. Because the Son of God, who is the Son of David, visited you in mercy, and he heard your pleas for compassion, and he answered them, saving you. And though your body might not have been healed yet, it will be one day, and you will be given a glorified body, and you will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity, and all of us till the end of days, which there will be no end of days for those in Christ, for all eternity, we will be singing and glorifying Jesus. Why? His mercy. No one will say in heaven, I'm here because I've earned it. You will say, I'm here because of mercy. We praise God for his mercy. Pray. Jesus, just to reflect on this small encounter, so profoundly moving, it humbles us, destroys our pride, Think that you would go so low, save, heal, even listen to this beggar. We are reminded how low you went to save us. We are reminded that it is your delight to show mercy to people like us. And Lord, if we have been shown so much mercy, how should we also extend mercy to those around us? Help us to imitate Christ in this way. In so doing, bring him glory. In his name we pray. Amen.